Hi there, and welcome back to a new episode of Many Moons Ago with DU History. My name is Shane. And my name is Quiva. On this week's episode, we will be discussing the Irish War of Independence and Civil War in public memory. Sunday the 6th of December 2020 marks the 99th anniversary of the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty. This brought the War of Independence between Britain and Ireland to a close, with Ireland gaining some form of independence as the Irish Free State came into fruition as a dominion of the British Empire. The aftermath of the treaty saw a stark divide in Irish politics, leading to an anti- and pro-treaty side that would go on to fight a civil war between 1922 and 1923. Today, we're joined by four expert guests on modern Irish history and memory on the Emerald Isle. First up, we have Professor Eunan O'Halpin. Eunan is a Professor Emeritus of Contemporary Irish History at Trinity College. He has a keen interest in Irish and British military, political and administrative history. He has recently published a book on the life of Kevin Barry entitled Kevin Barry, An Irish Rebel in Life and Death, and was the co-author of The Dead of the Irish Revolution, which was released in October of this year. Next up, we have Dr. Eve Morrison. Dr. Morrison is a Canon Murray Fellow in Irish History at St. Catherine's College, Oxford, having previously worked on the Remembering Violence and War, contextualising the Ernie O'Malley notebooks, and her forthcoming publication examines the life and aftermath of the Kilmichael ambush. And like our other guests, she has a connection to Trinity College, having studied history here. Next up, we have Dr. Kieran Wallace. Kieran is a historian of 19th and 20th century Irish history, with particular focus on urban history. While serving as a postdoctoral research fellow in Trinity, Kieran is also the deputy director of Beyond 2022, a Government of Ireland sponsored project which is working towards virtually recreating the Public Records Office to mark the centenary of its destruction in June 2022. And finally, we have Dr. Brian Hanley. Dr. Hanley is currently an assistant professor of modern Irish history at Trinity College. He has been noted as one of the leading historians of the Irish of Irish republicanism and revolution and of the 20th century more broadly. His, with his most recent book published last year examining the impact of the Troubles on the Republic of Ireland 1968 to 1979. Thank you so much to all our esteemed guests for joining us for today's episode. So first up, I wanted to come to Yunan to ask you a little bit about public memory. When we think of public memory, we're thinking of the history within a given community and how does that community, how does this group of people recollect certain events? And we're also looking at the ideas of how do they frame it? What do they choose to remember and what do they choose to forget? So can you tell us a little bit more about these ideas of public memory? And then is it possible for there to be a unified national memory on the events between 1919 and 1923? And what purpose, if any, would this serve for Irish people? Well, I think you can have a unified uh, national memory, but it's going to be pretty... Uh pretty pretty general and pretty vague and uh, associated with uh, expressions of regret and uh, you know hymns of pride as well uh, yeah, but it'll also be sectoral because different people within the political firmament and the cultural firmament and so on are going to take if they take an interest at all they're going to take very different lines you know i, I we saw in 2016 a sort of uh, i suppose a surprisingly um homogeneous or at least un, un, undisturbed uh, 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 commemoration of the centenary of the rising but there was no there was very little serious analysis I thought at the time including none from me uh, about about 1916 there was an absolute refusal uh, in the media to l- r- look at 1916 in terms of the first world war 
right, as being in some ways just another native, making trouble amongst the natives, which the British tried to do as well, and so on. And there was there was no analysis of the violence in 1916 as compared to the violence of the War of Independence and the Civil War. I am still don't know why there was no trouble in Belfast in 1916. It's easy to say there wasn't. It's not easy to say why. Nobody seems to be interested in that, in those kind of questions. So I think we've got over 1916, which is the huge worry for the government. I was, I was on an advisory committee uh, which advised the government about, about commemoration, and they just wanted to get over, get 1916, that centenary done, uh, preferably without the shinners sort of grabbing the flag. And once that was done, uh, uh, you know, they reckoned the presumption of the political levels were kind of over the hump. And I don't think there's remotely the same apprehension even about the Civil War, because um, 1916 was the big one, that centenary. But, but the result is it's, it is quite bland. Uh, if look, looking back on us, uh, we all, lots of people, I didn't dress up as Patrick Pierce. I was down outside the GPO. There were very different factions, uh, you know, wearing the right regalia, sort of. There was a kind of a carnival atmosphere. I don't complain about it, but it does. I don't know there was much systematic interrogation and the state the state just wanted to avoid trouble and to turn it into a kind of a people's festival and the ma mainstream Sinn Féin also wanted that. So I think it was okay from that point of view. And um, just to build upon that further, um, Eve, if you don't mind, um, I just wanted to ask you about issues kind of surrounding contemporaneous versus modern memory. Do you think there's much of a difference in how and how the public kind of commemorate and see the events now versus versus more contemporaneously. Uh, yes, I mean, I, I think it's I think with with commemoration is 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 different than history, and so I think that that in terms of commemoration, what you're doing is you're looking back at the past, and and drawing out bits that have relevance to the present, right? So so it's in a, in a way it's a different exercise. And just a comment a little bit about on the the a unified history. I don't think that's possible, right, in terms of historical events. I mean, I think what we're looking at is, is um, trying to create an, an atmosphere uh, in which th there should be an ongoing dialogue and debate, right, in which, in which everybody has a voice rather than trying to, because I think Yuna's right to say that what you get if you just try and please everybody and don't do anything controversial is you get a very flat and sometimes not very accurate uh, and 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 even not very interesting uh, account of what happened. So I mean, I think I, I I don't think that we should be striving for people not to be arguing anymore. I think you know, but I think what we should do is 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 create an atmosphere where um, you know people have a voice and that this dialogue is 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 carried out in a way where everybody feels able to take part. If you see what I mean. Um, but I think actually that 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 certainly one of the things that I try and do in my work is trace the evolution of how uh, historical events to in um, and the actual events during the War of Independence uh, and Civil War how they the memory changed over the decades and it can be quite dramatic really you know um, just because you know the political circumstances changed. Um, and even the participants themselves, the bits of those of the history that they're interest they're interested in and that they emphasize, also change and sometimes change quite radically. Not always, but a lot of times it does. And this is just the nature of memory and commemoration, you know. And so the thing is, so so, and what's important is 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 not so much. Um, 
what, what what's important is to be aware of it right and um more than trying to kind of change the nature of it, if that makes sense i i think eve made a really uh, useful point there the difference between the activity of memory commemoration and history and they are two different pursuits if you like and i wondered in 2016 listening to what union was saying and putting it in the light of what eve just said I wonder what the politicians more um, sensitive than the public actually were because the I found in some events that I would have attended around the centenary of 1916, the public seemed quite open to the idea of various views on the thing. They weren't getting head up about it. So was there a, a political, dr politically driven memory agenda, which was doing one thing, but actually the public were quite interested in alternative takes on things and were, I didn't necessarily agree with it, but they were, as Eve was saying, they were, they were happy to disagree, but they thought it was interesting that there were different points of view and seemed to buy into that uh, activity. So commemoration and history being two very different things, I think. Thank you so much for that, Kieran. Brian, you would like to jump in there. I suppose what struck me about 2016, and as Yunan mentioned, was the, the kind of sense of fear there was uh, among some commentators and maybe some historians as well about what could happen and I think a lot of that goes back to this idea that in 1966 we had this huge triumphalist celebration of the rising and that three years later the north exploded. Now I think there's a big argument to be had about what kind of impact 1966 had but 1966 the big song and dance was in the south it wasn't in the north it's the north that blew up and there was people who were seriously saying to me in 2015 that, you know, if we go too far with this, this will kick the troubles off again. And I think that's, you know, I think it's a very wrong idea because it completely ignores the kind of conditions that existed in, in Northern Ireland in 1969. But also then kind of promotes the idea that really um, commemoration of violent events just leads to other violent events or that there was no nuance in 1966, for example. I mean, some of the most critical pieces about the Rising were written by people like Conor Cruz O'Brien in, in, in 1966. It wasn't all just about a celebration. And then when 2016, as Yunan says, passes off in inverted commas peacefully, there's this sense of relief. Well, then this January, we had a huge public debate about the RIC, which nobody seems to have seen coming, you know. Um, and people thought, well, we got over the rising and everybody, you know, we acknowledged that there was Irishmen in the British Army killed. We acknowledged that there were civilians killed, but we didn't talk about it too much. We, you know, we, we emphasized the celebratory aspect. There were tricolors in the schools and so on. And, and it's funny because I'm teaching students now who, who were at school at that time, you know. And, and it, in some ways, it, it is amazing how little decades of historical scholarship seem to have percolated because they have basically the same ideas about 1916 that I would have had, you know, 40 years ago. And that perhaps my my mother or father might have had to an extent as well. So we can sometimes convince ourselves that historians have done all this great work and really the whole narrative has changed. And actually, in popular terms, it hasn't really changed that much at all. But also then we kind of have this, I, I thought it was very much an exaggerated sense that too much celebration would inevitably lead to a support for militant republicanism. Um, I remember Stephen Collins in the Irish Times, uh, you know, hardly annual on these matters saying, you know, oh, Sinn Féin have a strategy of getting the, into the position of mayor in towns all across the state so that they'll be in situ for 2016 and they'll take over things. Well, Dublin had a Sinn Féin Lord Mayor in 2016 and she didn't behave any differently than any other Lord Mayor would have done. If you go to the, she went to every event, she went to exhibitions I was involved in, she said all the conciliatory stuff. So this idea that really, you know, you were going to have this explosion of, of militant republicanism seemed to me to be, you know, kind of ignorant of what really happened in 1966. And also then 
probably ignored the, the fact that there's lots of other landmines on the way up to 1923, you know. Thank you all so much for your contributions. They're a really great way of getting the discussion going. I'm just curious now in relation to 1916 and the events that followed. So 1916 takes up a large chunk of the public discourse on 20th century Irish history. Many would see it in essence to be a failed revolution. So how do you think the memory of 1916, a failed revolution, compares to the War of Independence if this is what won Ireland's supposed freedom? Following on from that then, why is it that all of our commemorative efforts are pushed into 1916? As we've touched on, 1916 was seen as the big, the hill to get over without without trouble. Um, uh, after that, obviously, the, the founding of Doyle Air, the, fir- the first meeting of Doyle Air in January 1919, uh, uh, inconveniently as well as conveniently, but fell on the, st- on the, on the same day as the centenary of the Solahed ambush. And that in some ways was helpful because it meant that a sort of the state's attention and the constitutional attention could be on, on the first meeting of the first Doyle rather than on uh, the sort of uh, the brutal realities of, of uh, Dan Breen and, and uh, Ty Crow and whoever uh, shooting two policemen uh, fairly or not. So, um, and, and I do think because partly because the War of Independence wasn't a series of great battles because it was a series of small, mainly very small engagements uh, of some set piece uh, kind of tragedies like Terence McSweeney in London or Kevin Barry for that matter in Dublin. Um, there's um, uh, the, the, I think the state, states, the state's line was the, the, the sort of bureaucracy's line, which I can fully understand. Is let's not let's get involved here as little as possible. We let the, we let these events be be, be marked at the, at the local level by by perhaps by different groups, sometimes by rival groups, uh, but we don't get involved ourselves. So I think the state has now firmly stepped back uh, from uh, from 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 anything any direct, any kind of excuse the term big bang to do certainly with the war of independence obviously the civil war there will be there will be some sort of iconic event uh, possibly involving giving a big focus on, on the four courts uh, some i don't know i'm just speculating on that uh, or, uh, but there won't be the status is going to do as little as possible but i don't think we should be too critical of, of anybody uh, whatever their views in relation to commemoration we're now in the now in the midst in Britain of the of the annual orgy of about five or six weeks coming up to to, to Remembrance Sunday. If I was in, in Britain now uh, on the media, for example, even on radio, I'd have to wear a poppy. It would just be unheard of not to. And in fact, wearing of the poppy has become during my lifetime much greater requirement in, in, in public visibility uh, uh, that, that it was, say, when I was a kid in the 60s or 70s, where you wouldn't see it nearly as much. Now you couldn't, you couldn't get in a bus in Britain, let alone drive home without a poppy. So, we're, and yet the, commemor- the war they're commemorating, or the wars they're commemorating, uh, are, are equally uh, overly simplified and equally under-interrogated. And we go back time and again to Churchill and the Second World War, the most grotesque misrepresentations of what actually happened. So I, I think commemoration and even a public memory uh, is, is very often associated n- not, not with subtlety, not with nuance for good or ill, but with a kind of romanticized and oversimplified th- view of the past. And that, w- that won't change. Yeah, that's great, Yunan. So Kieran, you would like to add on to what Yunan has just said. 
I'm just wondering, listening to what Ewan is saying there, like, are there, there's kind of a, a state memory, uh, a state commemorative activity they can fund and facilitate state activity. Um, and then there's popular memory. So the state might want to do a certain thing, but the people, you know, the people, capital P, might have another memory. But then there's a third layer, there's kind of like private memory. So within families, you might have a commemoration in some part of Ireland where there was a, uh, a particularly um, bloody event happening during the uh, War of Independence or during the Civil War. But then when you drill below the local community level to the private family level, then the families are suffering or remembering or, or, or are not remembering in other ways. So there's like maybe three layers of it and what families choose to do, what personal, what personal memories how they interact with community memory commemoration, I think is an interesting challenge. And so it's hard to square those three circles in any commemorative activity. It'll, it'll never really align perfectly like a Venn diagram where all three are sitting, all three circles are sitting flat on top of each other. There'll always be people left out in the cold or, or suffering, having to watch commemoration of an event of a thing which was their great grandmother, great grandfather was on the receiving end of the violence or the receiving end of the oppression or whatever it was. I think that's a, a, a problem. I want to pick up uh, on a few things that, that people have said. I mean, first of all, I think Brian is absolutely right to talk about 1966 and the commemorations there and the way it's, 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 it's been, been misrepresented. Because I think if anything, there's been a considerable dumbing down of the way the revolutionary period is portrayed now compared to, to the way it was in 1966. And I think he's absolutely right in that. But I also think that, and, and in terms of the way people understand the period, I mean, I th to a certain extent, I, it has to do with the way it's taught, uh, not at university, but, but in, in primary school and secondary school. I have to say that when my daughter took history, uh, I was pretty shocked by when I read through her history book um, at, at the way, at how simplistic and how um, it was and how the revolutionary period was. And so the thing is, if, if you want to look at the, you know, the reasons why people's general understanding of what happened in the period hasn't changed. So I think looking at secondary school books is a good place to start. And, and so I think that that's probably something that, that historians um, should, should get involved with. And, and, um, but, but also, um, you know, I, th I think as well that uh, Kieran raised a very good point and it's something that I've noticed in my work in Kilmichael and other things is that the actual living local memory and local commemorations and local understanding of, of historical events is much more complex than an interesting and sophisticated and reflective than the, you know, the public debates about some of these issues would suggest. And I think that was reflected to, to, you know, in terms of, of, for instance, the RAC, that the local commemoration of Solahead Bag, they decided to, to, to commemorate the RAC, the Irishman who had died as well. That was a local initiative. Nobody was pushing that on them. And that's an example of how complex local understanding of events can be compared to you know when you get political parties involved when you get the state involved yeah, brian do you want do you want to take it there yeah i mean i think another factor about 1916 is is the which the rebels themselves some of them at least were aware of is the theatrical aspect um firstly it takes place in the center of dublin and everybody knows where the gpo is the rebels wore uniforms and they took on the british in well, it wasn't a fair fight in terms of numbers or equipment, but they didn't, you know, it was, it was fought in a, in a very conventional manner. And they had a manifesto. Now, I was sorry we didn't in 2016 try to interrogate 
the proclamation more and how it was written and actually what the, the vast majority of people taking part in the rising you know never saw the proclamation uh, before the rising started but but the fact is there is a proclamation there so you can always claim these men and women were fighting for an exact set of beliefs by the time you get to the war of independence it's a lot more messy and even though there's intense local pride in in the various ambushes and the various engagements that happened around the country um it's kind of unclear we have all these questions about mandates we have questions about you know what people believed and what they didn't believe in and when you look at the politics of the various actors involved in the leadership of the war of independence you've got all kinds of ideas about everything it just isn't as clear as the proclamation is so i think 1916 suits a national memory of the of fighting for a republic in a whole series of ways and again the I mean, the elephant in the room was that in between 1966 and, and up to the late 1990s, we had a war in, in part of this country, which was fought under the same slogans as, as the War of Independence, and which involved all sorts of horrific things that most people didn't want to be associated with. And 1916 isn't really associated with them. But the War of Independence is once you examine it. Now, the version of the War of Independence that I knew, and that I think most people knew, never really talked about these things but now we are talking about them so again the provisional ira disappeared 16 people and that's rightly regarded as as criminal and is still a topic of of fairly heated controversy but the good old ira disappeared probably over 100 you know maybe 60 in cork alone and that you know throws a spanner in the works in the way that you want to commemorate the war of independence because either then you say that's legitimate all's fair in love and war well, why is it not fair for the provost then? Um, which is what they will say. So I think the War of Independence is messier in a lot of ways for almost everybody. Um, and for most people, 1916 seems like a much fairer fight and also gives us the idea of the proclamation, which we can, we can then claim was betrayed or whatever, but nevertheless is clearer maybe than what, um, or what we know about what they were fighting for. I mean, the problem is there was a manifesto in 1919 and all the rest of it, we've talked very little about it. Just actually to build on, I think both what you and you had mentioned and Eve. When I was in when I was in secondary school studying history, a great deal of what we learned was based around profiles of people and the work that people did, specifically revolutionaries as as we've come to know them. And I think when it comes to Ireland, the memory of revolution is, is nothing without its revolutionaries. And I was just wondering what ye in general think of how the role of the individual plays in to public public and personal memory of, of revolution. Michael Collins might be the biggest example of you can focus on an individual and that individual becomes a, a, a multi-hook coat rack that you can hang all sorts of things on, whether or not that's what they really were like in real life and stuff. So I'm always very nervous. It, it feeds into kind of great man or great woman history, feeds into which there are individual acts of bravery, but I don't know that anybody leads this completely uh, honest, pure, dedicated life, which never varies from one true goal. And then in later times, everybody can honestly reflect. I think all heroes and heroines have feet of clay, ultimately. So I think it's a, it's a thing that's very attractive to do, to hang a commemorative thing on an individual. You can make a statue, you can put their name up <clears throat> and so forth. But I think there's a... Uh, there's always a risk in that because if you do a full microscopic biography of anybody, there's always going to be moments where they don't live up to the ideals they've set themselves. We all do it, so it's, we're all human. Um, so I think the, the role of the personal in the role of the individual uh, um, rebel, uh, 
I would feel personally as a historian, I'd feel more comfortable looking at sort of the composite movement and what people's contributions were rather than the individual as a, like a, a statue, metaphorically as a statue. I think that's kind of a, a dangerous way to pursue commemoration myself. Thank you for, for the question. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I would agree with, uh, with Kieran, I think, in, in the caution. And I mean, first of all, the thing I would say just generally about the way it's, it's uh, remembered, there's too much emphasis on the guerrilla war uh, during the War of Independence, as opposed to, um, the, the, you know, the more insurgent and, um, aspects of it, and also the takeover of local government. Because the thing is, one of the things that I've been noticing in my research when I've read lots and lots of newspapers at the time, British newspapers, international news, you know, American newspapers from all over the world. And what really caught the world's imagination at the time wasn't so much the guerrilla war. It was the, the you know, it was the local elections. It was Sinn Féin's takeover of, of the local, of, of, um, local government. Um, and, and it was, you know, and it was the, the popular participation and the kind of mandate that the local elections, particularly in the summer of 1920, seemed to give uh, the move, you know, the, the base what was happening in Ireland. And in a way, people don't emphasize that enough. So there's much, much too much narrow concentration on, you know, one ambush or another. And, and in fact, you know, the, the experience of individual guerrillas and things when I, where really I think you need to step back um, and, and, and look at what was happening in Ireland, a wider perspective and stop concentrating so much on the ambushes because I actually think, you know, what was happening in t on the political side was just as important. And, and, it, and certainly in terms of, of um, what what gave the, the Irish Revolution at the time um, its legitimacy was was you know what was happening on the on the political level was was if anything more important than than the war. We still have how many books have been written about the revolutionary government, the first and the second doll, you know local government, almost none, you know. So it's a, so people's in in that sense you know people's understanding of what happened is quite skewed. Union, you would like to add to that. I think there's other issues as well to do with the War of Independence. One is we have to ask ourselves, is this, what war are we talking about? In, in, in Belfast in 1920 and 21, you've over 230 people killed. Is that part of the War of Independence or not? Or is that some quaint sort of local custom, right? We've to separate two things. One is the emergence of, of, of uh, following the Government of Ireland Act 1920, in effect, of what becomes the treaty settlement. And, and the other is the, the particular experience of revolutionary violence and some of the great protagonists, be it, be it Michael Collins, whom we all write about, uh, be it, be it uh, Michael Brennan, whom we don't write about, or, or Donica Hannigan, or my, Tom Barry, whom we all worship or criticize. But we're, we're, if we look at this, we, what we, what's really interesting is we don't look at it on an all-island basis. Eve is quite right. We don't look at it in terms of the revolutionary government, which was a practical achievement, which gave something for the British to negotiate. We don't look at it in terms of the Government of Ireland Act. We don't look in terms of British policy at all. I happened to write a book, my first book on Dublin Castle, although it ended in August 1920. But the, the, the point is the British were, were pushing for a political, ultimately a political solution on terms that they could accept. And there's a lot of politics going on, even as the, the violence increases in early 21, the parties uh, uh, are circling around each other. They're moving towards a settlement. There's nearly a deal in December 1920. None of this is ever mentioned, mentioned or discussed. It's all, as to the late Peter Hart's term, ambushography and the North 
except in terms of reference to atrocities and to the shipyard expulsions. The North is, we partition the island of Ireland in terms of talking of the War of Independence before partition even legally took place. And I think that's really interesting. So in effect, we're consolidating uh, the, the 26 counties as a completely separate narrative, even before July 1921 or whatever, when the king goes to Stormont and makes his speech. I think it's really interesting how uh, our knees, and also we forget the British high politics in terms of Ireland, and hardly anybody except the late Roland Fanning finally produced his great work, Fatal Path, dealing with this. But we just talk about things as though Tom Barry or Donald Hannigan or whatever, that the shots they fired were the decisive things that won the war and that, that produced the outcome. But this is, this is just, it's interesting, but it's not, it is so incomplete an analysis uh, of, of the politics which produced this state and the northern state. I mean, I agree that the, the popular aspect of, of the, the revolution is, is definitely underplayed in, in, in both commemorative terms and also historiography. But I mean, Peter Hart's first great book was about the IRA and its enemies. It was about killing. And the historians themselves have concentrated on this to a great extent. And, you know, I mean, I haven't um, done anything about it either, you know, to, you know, but I mean, the, the global aspect of the revolution, the way Ireland was viewed outside, both among the diaspora um, and in the countries where the Irish had a presence, but also among the various uh, contenders in European politics and, and further afield is all very significant. I mean, the British have one eye on America and they don't even know if the Americans are really going to be there their friends, you know, and the Irish question is, is part of that. And, and all those things play into why the British ultimately do seek the settlement they do. Um, and also their other commitments. I mean, Sir Henry Wilson, you know, was very, very worried in 1920 whether the British had the capacity to, to control what he saw as the storm centres of the empire. And, and Ireland was only one of them, you know, he had obviously India, Egypt, Iraq and so on. The British army scaled down. I mean, we do, and that's true, we don't, I mean, the, the big cliche, which is emphasised in the works which are, are influential about Michael Collins, uh, both the Neil Jordan movie, which is probably the most single influential historical work, up until relatively recently, anyway, um, uh, certainly 20 years ago, that's what everybody had seen and everybody quoted, and, and very influenced by Tim Pat Coogan's work on Collins, is that in 1921, Collins had brought the British Empire to its knees, and that phrase is actually used. Now, if the British Empire was on its knees in 1921, um, why did they, didn't they give us the Fort Greenfield and everything else and, you know, give us compensation and so on? The British set the terms of the treaty, you know, more or less, they were at least able to, to enforce it. So they weren't on their knees, whatever else they were. But we have this idea that Collins, and, and it feeds in then to a very kind of, of naive anti-treaty perspective, which is that victory was within grasp. And Collins, for some bizarre reason, possibly due to, to being, you know, the bright lights of London just decides not to not to bother, comes back and accepts all these compromises. So, you know, the popular view is is popular, I suppose, for a whole range of reasons, the emotions that it appeals to in people. But um, can we do better as historians? I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not sure. We, we, we always think we're doing well. And yet, as we've all agreed here, the popular view is, 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 is often very different. Kieran, you would like to jump in there. Sorry, I'll just be brief on this. I mean, I wonder then if historians can ever hope to change popular memory and commemorative activity. Are they completely different 
motorways heading in opposite directions and they're unrelated and you just have to let commemoration of memory off on its own and let academic history be a separate thing. I, I would always expect that one would inform the other, but in fact they don't, while historians might study commemoration, I don't think commemoration ever really uh, takes the filtering in of, of history. I just wanted to follow on a little bit with Brian was saying. I mean, I agree with that. I think uh, I, you know, the, I don't think the British Empire was on its knees. Um, and if anything, at the, you know, the, the British Army felt completely stabbed in the back because they, as far as they were concerned, they were winning uh, in the summer of 1921. But what was what had happened is is that is is that it wasn't is that uh, the British campaign in Ireland had had very limited public support by the summer of 1921 there'd been the labor the british labor party had had uh, embarked on a, you know a mass campaign against reprisals um, and in the british press i mean you know when you look at the the broad expanse of the british press they were in the, even the times was critical of the, of the british uh, campaign and they were very very anti ira but they were also very very critical of reprisals and it was becoming in you know increasingly you know the whole tenure of 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 the debate in ireland was becoming um very very critical of the british campaign in ireland and so by the summer of 1920 they you know they they the, the british probably still could have instituted a scorched earth policy and and defeated the ira but they but they would have but you know they would have lost the support of of british public opinion they didn't have that to carry on and that was crucial all right, and so and that's another aspect of of which you know because is is that the 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 uh, Sinn Fein's publicity campaign was you know was how important it was and the contacts they made with the British press and with the international press was really crucial and very very successful uh, and com and certainly compared to um, to the British uh, uh, portrayal of 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 its of its campaign. Um, which was in Dublin Castles, which was kind of a disaster. Thank you all so much for that. Brian, if I could come back to you for a moment, you touched an awful lot on the legacy of Collins. Obviously, the treaty that is born out of this trip to London results in a pro and anti-treaty sides, and ultimately a split in the Sinn Féin party. Many would trace this back to the formation of modern Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael as they stand, goes without saying that the Anglo-Irish Treaty was the political zeitgeist of its time, but do you think it is fair to say that the treaty has shaped modern Irish politics, or do you think that it has been overstated a century later in leading to this great divide? I'm going to say it's overstated um, because, firstly, there's a lot of people who didn't take any sides in the treaty. Um, uh, even within the IRA, this, this is a very significant part of the IRA that didn't fight in the Civil War. Um, Jimmy Wren did two studies of the GPO and the Four Courts garrisons from 1916, and he, you know, tried to trace where they ended up, and was interested in both the GPO and the Four Courts. Um, of the three groups, the largest was neutral in the Civil War. Now, probably didn't like the treaty, you know, but they weren't prepared to fight over it. And you've got a significant section of the population who don't take part in the Civil War, who have the Civil War inflicted on them, and those people don't go away. So, I mean. Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael by the 1930s are certainly, their roots are very firmly in the Civil War split, but both of them have added on elements. You know, Fine Gael have added on some of the ex-home rulers, um, some of the ex-unionists and others. Fianna Fáil have added on, you know, I mean, I, I, 
my family would have been Fianna Fáil supporters and you would think then if you go back that in the in the Civil War they'd all have been anti-treaty and that's not the case at all. I mean, my granduncle Tom Lee was, was in the Free State Army and was killed in, in 1922. But so we, I don't think the political opinion is frozen in 1922-23, even though the rhetoric, I mean, the idea that in 1967-68 there were by-elections and people were shouting, remember, the 77 in some ways is is bizarre, but it's important for political activists to, to believe that this is what they're fighting about. Perhaps the blue shirt Republican conflicts of the 1930s actually intensified this sense of bitterness among activists, you know, who, who then carried that on. I mean, in my house, Michael Collins was always referred to as a blue shirt, which is, you know, physically impossible for him to have been one, but nevertheless, that's the way he was thought of. But I think that it's, it ignores, for example, the vote that Labour got in 1922, which the Labour Party itself is, is only vaguely aware of as well, because if you ask the Irish Labour Party, why they've never been that successful up on recently, or oh, the Civil War. Well, actually, in 1922, the Irish Labour Party got more votes in lots of places than the anti-treaty acts. Um, and you've got Alfie Byrne tops the poll in Dublin Central, a former home ruler. You've got all sorts of farmers, candidates, and so on. So the idea that all that's happening in 1922 is that we're divided over the treaty is, I think, obviously wrong. Now, it leads to a, a war, and that's important. Um, and that does, you know, very much frame this division. But it's, a, I mean, probably the general public aren't as much aware of this, but Irish historians do, you know, talk about what's our civil war like compared to others. Well, there isn't an ethnic basis in our civil war, right? So it's two wings of the Republican movement fighting, essentially. Um, so we don't have, it's not Catholics versus Protestants or Blacks versus Whites or whatever. And I think that says something about its nature and the way it's fought as well. There's lots of people who sit it out, even people who have taken part in the War of Independence. You know, they're neutral during the, the, the Civil War. And civilians aren't targeted as much as they are in other civil wars, you know, in general in our civil war. Um, that's not to say they aren't killed, but they're not killed as much as they are in, in contemporary civil wars all over Central and Eastern Europe at the time. And it's not a class war either, even though I think class has something to do with it. And, and the opinions both sides have about each other are often couched in class terms. It's not a war for the extermination of the bourgeoisie or the working class. So again, people compared to Finland, um, which has a savage civil war um, in 1919, 1920, which is really about, you know, if one side wins, the other one is gone. You know, in the Irish Civil War, it's not really about we're going to kill every anti-treatyite or we're going to kill every pro-treatyite. So I think it's it's overstated. But at the same time, I mean, you can't understate how important the Civil War is either. But I don't think that's what Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are really fighting about in the 1950s, you know. Union, would you like to jump in there? I agree entirely with Brian, I mean, even on the issue of classes, I just said, point out my Kevin Barry book. A large number of the most senior anti-treatyites, including my grandfather and great-uncle, are Jesuit boys, right? Yet the Jesuits and that kind of bourgeois thing is, is it's always taken that the, the you know that that that, that there are, it's all pro-treatyites and it's all kind of money and solicitors on one side, not the other. The other group in the Civil War who are particularly interesting are Northern Republicans, including I would say my, my grandfather, who had to come south. They couldn't stay in the north, and by and large, most of them joined the Free State not the anti-treaty IRA, and they join it because they, they need an army to join. In some cases, they're joining an army, think it's going to reconquer the North and blah, and blah, and blah. But they actually, uh, so, so again, that cuts against the, uh, you know, the, uh, a simple argument that, that uh, about partition and about uh, that the, this romantic notion that some anti, 
some Republicans have that all the all the real fighters and all the hard men uh, were on one side, and it was yeah, the it was just the the softies with Willie Cosgrave and the Brits backing him, uh, who simply by force of money and and, and weight of arms that defeated this heroic. Uh, this this heroic anti-treaty struggle but but I, and again as brian said I, I absolutely agree with the exception of what becomes northern ireland where there's hideous sectarian conflict you don't have uh, what we would see to be as the standard elements almost of of a post of a, of a post-imperial uh, uh, disintegration that you have in europe in terms of ethnic conflict in terms of targeting of civilians and so on it's a very strange civil war altogether i don't understand it at all to follow on from what Brian was, was saying in terms of, of support or the lack of popular support for the Civil War and the, and the importance of the role of the Labour Party. Um, because, for instance, like I think it was 10 days after the occupation of the, of, of the forecourts by anti-treatyites in, in, in uh, April 22, there was a general strike. All right, of, of that thousands and thousands and thousands of people, a general strike against militarism called by um, the Labour Party that was that was massively supported. I looked. I don't think a single daily newspaper appeared or was printed on the day of the strike. Um, and it was in pro. It was in protest against people did not want a resumption of the war. It doesn't mean they were particularly enamoured with the treaty, but they didn't. But they but they wanted the war to stop. And they would. And certainly, it's it's very clear from the elections in the summer of 1922 that the vast majority of people. Um, you know that you know they would prefer the treaty to the outbreak of the war, um, and I think, and also, and there was continuing not enough emphasis really has been has been placed on the continuing efforts of the neutral IRA and of various bodies, um, you know, in in civil society that were continuing throughout the civil war to to bring it to the end, uh, to bring it to an end. And I think probably the person who's done the best work on this and the most pioneering work on this is Bill Kassan. Um, and so, and I think that, I mean, his work um, really, I think, changed my perspective a lot in terms of how I, how I saw the Civil War, um, and, and certainly in, term, in terms of popular support. And it's also important to remember that until the 30s, that what you, you know, what you see is, 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 that, is that, you know, you had a, um, a, a, the, the Irish policy was very, very, um, Divided, there was lots of different political parties, and so that the, so that um, Cumann Gael that became Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil, you know, eventually they don't consolidate their their hold on the electorate until you know until the 30s. It's like a gradual process. So before that, you had all sorts of parties, as Brian said, um, you know. So so uh, this you know civil war politics, I guess, you know, it's it's possible. It's certainly arguable that they became more important as time went on. So I wanted to jump over to Ciaran now. The Battle of the Four Courts is historically seen to be the beginning of the Irish Civil War following the assault that was ordered on the 28th of June 1922. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened after this assault was ordered? The battle, funnily enough, is something that I slightly avoid in the work that I'm currently doing, and that goes into public commemoration as well, so I'll explain that in a minute. But it links back to something that Brian was talking about with 1916 and the kind of theatricality and having a manifesto and so forth. The four courts were occupied on Good Friday, 1922, so there's a definite ringing that same bell that was rung in 1916, in Easter 1916. So they're occupied on Good Friday in the same way that Easter weekend and the thinking was what was inside the railings of the four courts was the true republic as declared in 1916. So they issue 
uh, anti-treaty Republican government, um, as they see themselves, uh, 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 documents, proclamations and things dated year six of the Republic. So they're they're dating from 1916. They say we are the spirit and soul of what happened in the GPO. Um, but it runs on, it's it, like the, the photographs and the iconic imagery of the occupation of the Four Courts is always the great cloud of flame and the singing cloud of fire and flame and the destruction on the 30th of June. But it does begin, as Eve has already said, it begins back in April, it begins eight weeks earlier. And it's quite a calm lockdown, lock, uh, lockdown there you go, it's quite a calm sort of uh, <laughs> um, siege for quite a while. The senior commanders in the Four Courts, inside the Four Courts, actually go out of an evening and socialise in the same sort of Republican haunts that their uh, Free State you know, former compatriots, or former co comrades are also socialising in. It only sort of really becomes more... Um, uh, 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 tightly fractious, I suppose, later on in, into June. There was even, for instance, a um, they, they had a, a Wolf Tone Day lecture inside the Forecourts to which they sent out written invitations. People were invited to come into the Forecourts during the siege, well, not siege, but during the occupation in order to attend these lectures. So, so the history was actually happening, Republican history was happening inside the Republic as they saw it inside the railings. Um, but to the, the reason that I don't focus on the military history, well, it's not my, it's not my thing, but um, the project I'm involved in, Beyond 2022, which is involved in sort of digitally recreating the lost archive that gets destroyed because it's inside the Forecourt's railings when the battle happens on the 30th of June. The reason, one of the reasons I've argued that we're getting funding from the state at all is because it's it allows a commemoration of the Civil War without commemorating the Civil War. So we can talk about a reconstructive thing, which is positive and it's sort of rebuilding and knitting back together. And you can kind of step over the huge cloud of ash into the digital reconstruction effort. So it's very interesting and from a public history point, we're taking advantage of it and we're not shy to say that, but, and it will be a public good. It will be good for studying history for the deeper history of Ireland going back way back seven centuries. But it's certainly one way of state funding stepping over a, a, a pile of very problematic ashes in the forecourts, I think. Yeah, Brian, you had something you'd like to add there. I suppose it just struck me when Kieran was talking there that while we've kind of been in broad agreement about the, the nature of the civil war and, and and its impact. Um, I have to say that up until relatively recently, the historiography or, or certainly the political science on the Irish Civil War has been overwhelmingly biased in one direction, which is the pro-treaty direction. Um, not just because the pro-treatyites, you know, won an election, but, but essentially because the anti-treatyites were portrayed as essentially fascists. And, and it's Kieran reminded me of that because in 1999, I think Tom Garvin wrote in the Irish Times about the destruction of the four courts. And he argued that, you know, the, the records were destroyed deliberately because every version of the IRA since 1923 has been fascist and that this is where it all starts. And I think, you know, looking at the civil war in that sense doesn't really explain it. And it doesn't really explain the reason why people took the stances they did about the treaty within the, the Republican movement. And again, it ignores the fact that um, you know, uh, as Yunan says, there's very little knowledge in Britain of these things. Well, there's, there's almost no knowledge, I, I would think, in Britain that at this time there were still British troops in Dublin. And the British government had said, unless the Irish government does something about these guys in the four courts, we're going to have to come back and do it for you. So the role of Britain in our civil war and the fact that it is a player in the civil war, the pro-treaty side obviously going to be dependent on Britain for military equipment and so on, not, uh, not even talking about the the terms of the treaty and all the rest of it is is a factor in why there is a civil war in in what becomes the free state and also in practical terms as john dorney i think has written the best book on on the the civil war in dublin there were still british troops in dublin in december 1922 which most people just would you know 
presume they were gone and, and and they weren't doing a lot but they were there and 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 i think it adds to our the complexity of the story and certainly the the, the binary divide that on one side there's the democrats who are expressing the will of the irish people and on the other side there's the the fanatics who refuse to accept it doesn't really explain why people made the choices they did or indeed the character of the war and as Eunan again talked about you know Republicans would reckon the fighters are on our side and the softies are on the other. Well, the, the pro-treatyites had the, the hardcore of Michael Collins' squad and so on, whose record in the Civil War is not something that I think people would, will really want to commemorate without um, a lot of hard thinking, you know? And I think in, in, in the Civil War, the, the pro-treatyites could make a good claim that they had the hard men, a lot of them on their side. And a lot of the, you've got some idealists on the other who aren't very good at fighting when it comes down to it. But so I think you know the idea that this is it's just a question of say democracy by 1922, and anybody who's against the treaty is essentially uh, uh, anti-democratic. That needs to be challenged too, and and it was a pretty dominant view I think up until relatively recently. Yeah, I can just jump in and briefly on that, Brian. I think the um, the the allegation uh, sort of the negative views against the anti-treaty forces who occupied the four courts and then the destruction of the record office. From the very next day, I think it's in 24 hours, there's a free state um, statement saying this was deliberate destruction. They mined the, the record building in order to destroy it. And in fact, Michael Fewer had produced a book on the Battle of the Four Courts where he goes forensically through this. And there's, uh, you know, really not strong evidence to say this was a deliberate, I mean, certainly there was a lot of ammunition and uh, explosives lying around, but they weren't, they didn't, uh, in my view from reading Michael's book, they didn't set out to destroy the history, like the, the historical records. Um, but it certainly is something to put in the weighing scales on one side if you're against the anti-treaty forces it's certainly a huge weight on that side of, of the scales. Eve would you like to jump in there? I, I think uh, Brian is certainly right to say that the democratic anti-democratic or portraying the civil war as a, as, as a struggle between democrats and you know and fascists or whatever that that was common I think that has certainly broken down at least to a certain extent and, and as and again it's Bill Cassan's book Politics of the, of the Irish Civil War that has the most sophisticated analysis of both the the anti and the pro treaty side and basically and and the important point that I think he makes is that is that um basically neither side uh were very good democrats in the civil war because because the the, the problem for instance in portraying the, the pro treaty side even though they portrayed themselves as being the democrats that then they broke the tall right they were supposed they didn't they didn't they didn't summon the doll until september um and when and after the, after the bombing of the forecourt, so they didn't have a popular mandate for 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 attacking the forecourts either. And the only people that, and and the Labour Party, it has to be said, played a blinder. The you know in in this period, they were the ones who were insisting that the pro treatyites called it all, and that they were and calling for an end to the civil war, and they were critical of both sides. So really, I mean, I think that you know, what happened during the Civil War, that, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. And certainly the assumptions that's been made by both sides, you know, of the divide are, are wrong. And I think, and I, but, but I also think that, that's, you know, that gradually I think we are getting a more sophisticated uh, uh, take on, on what happened. Eunan, go ahead, if you'd like to add. I'm afraid back to the same point. And what do we do about, about the North? In 1922, is that part? Is that a different story? Is that again? Is it just their quaint customs? Because there's ferocious sectarian violence in, in Belfast, of which the nationalist community are the main recipients. 
right? And we blithely talk here about the bloody four courts and so on. And yet somehow the, what happens in Belfast, even though we talk about partition and anti-partition, and yet we don't, we, don't, we don't think of it psychologically as part of our narrative at all. I think that's very strange. I think, you know, I think you've got to look at the island rather than what happens with, with, with the, the government of Ireland that coming into operation in terms of, of political violence. And, and even the Republican narrative on the one hand goes in two directions. On the one hand, it's about United Ireland and all this, but the specifics of the fighting are all about, they're all about uh, the particulars of what happens in Dublin or in Limerick or what fails to happen in so much of the 26 counties, even though there's the bloody... Belfast is, you know, in, effectively in flames. If you Google refugees, uh, I was looking at Getty, Getty Images, their, uh, you know, their photograph library, and uh, you Google refugees Ireland 1922, you get quite a few of these nice black and white shots of refugees, and they're all taken in Dublin. They're all refugees from Belfast. But yet we leave that out of the story, even though as we cry about the fourth green field. I'm baffled. I ask you just from Union's research on the dead of the Irish Revolution, is there a um, is there a popular memory, uh, a public memory, but like going away from sort of history, but is there like a family memory of that? Uh, do families reflect on that really very intense violence over those years in Belfast particularly? Is it part of the memory or have they sort of somehow thrown a blanket over it and like the rest of us have? Well, I, I'm I'm basically spoofing on this because I, I don't know. I mean, I, what I what I, what I what I tell you what I don't know nothing about is loyalist memory and loyalist loyalist slash unionist and special constabulary memory of these years. We you know we can we have the pensions, we have the bureau of military history, we have a lot of ballads, we have a lot of republican idly dies and stories, and you have terrible appalling stories of appalling privation and suffering and cruelty. But on the unionist side. I don't know where the history is. Is, is it all in, in Orange Lodges? I mean, if you read some of the killings around down around, Altnave is in 1922, has become the only sort of, uh, if you like, unionist, the only point where unionists say, look at the terrible things the IRA did to us. But there must be all over the place. There's grandchildren, there's great-grandchildren, and there's probably, there were probably specials and loyalists who, who sat around sometimes celebrating, but sometimes thinking, Jesus, did we go too far? Was that justified? Just as there is on the nationalist and Republican sides. But I don't know. Brian might know. I, I don't. Well, I mean, I don't really know. And, and, and Newman is right. The, uh, the lack of, of any kind of real study of paramilitary loyalism, for example, in those years and the various organizations that existed in Belfast. We just, we have names, we don't, we know very little about them. And there's, there is a, a, a memory among nationalists in Belfast of those events. And, and of course, you know, 50 years later, a lot of people were still alive who could remember them when, when 1969 happened. And this played into the, the sense of abandonment. But I think it's, it's significant that during the treaty debates, you know, Arthur Griffith, who was no, I mean, no slouch, you know, was trying to sell the, the, the treaty. And he says, we've brought back the flag. We've brought back the evacuation of Ireland after 700 years by British troops. Now, he says the evacuation of Ireland. Now, nobody stands up and says straight after him, oh, they're, they're not leaving Ireland. They're only leaving this part. Um, but the fact is that people did, even then, a lot of Southern nationalists think in terms of Ireland as the place where they lived. And the North was somewhere different. And you can go through quotes from Michael Collins about who would go to Belfast to see the real Ireland. It's only a, an inferior Lancashire. And Collins cared about Belfast. I mean, Collins is very involved in what's happening. But I think it's a very messy, it's all messy. But I mean, in 1922, 
we know Collins is encouraging an IRA offensive, but at the same time, supposedly signing a deal with, with Craig to help the, the state get off the ground. The Irish army are engaged, I think, at Pedigal, the Irish army fights the British army, don't they? Is that the only time that's happened since independence? I mean, you know, as well as the anti-treaty IRA are there. And um, and, and the, the, the four courts occupiers are kind of told, you know, you'll get the blame for some of this, but that will suit everybody, you know. So the British will think it's you, but really it's us as well. And this is all going to bring us back together. So there's all kinds of subterfuge and, and so on going on. And... Yeah, the nationalists in Belfast are the ones who are, who are the big losers. I mean, the ones along the border area think maybe the Boundary Commission will sort things out. Um, and again, there is that complete, what seems so co counterintuitive today, that so many Belfast IRA men joined the Free State Army, you know, and that so many Northern Republicans have an affection for Collins in a way that they don't have for De Valera or, or other anti-treaty acts. So um, it, it is... I mean, the only explanation I can give for, for why it's, it's not more widely discussed is that it doesn't really suit anyone's narrative. I think unionists want to, you know, suggest 1922 saw the establishment of a state which was uh, in accordance with the will of the people who lived there and discussion of how that state came about and that it really had to repress a big section of its inhabitants is, is not really, from their point of view, uh, really welcome either. So. Um, that's the only reason I can, the reasons I can think of why it's, it's uh, not more widely commemorated. So in 1989, J.J. Lee said the Irish Civil War had left a legacy of bitterness in Ireland. And in 2003, Anne Dolan wrote in her book on commemorating the Irish Civil War that silence had been the preferred case in remembering the conflict. Before we wrap up our discussion, I wanted to ask you if you think that this has always been the case and still is in relation to public, popular and local memory. And have we managed to shake this notion? I mean, I think uh, I distinguish between state commemoration and local commemoration when you're when you're talking about the Civil War. Um, because there, you know, there was from from quite early on, there were there were there were there were uh, at local level commemorations and marches and, you know, um, by, you know, of both pro and anti treaty figures, right, you know, right from, from you know, from I think the Liam, I think the first Liam Lynch commemoration was probably was was 1924, I think. Um, and there was uh, and so th those have always, you know, to a certain extent, they've been contentious, but they've always been going on. So if you're talking about the state, it was, it, you know, uh, um, they don't really commemorate, you know, there was a difficulty with the state commemorating the Civil War and talking about it. And the thing is, and also when you're talking about silence, you can, it's perfectly understandable in rural areas where people who fought on either side of, of, of the Civil War are living down the road from each other. Right. And they still have to, you know, they still have to get on with their lives and live together. Then silence isn't, you know, is a, is, is a, is a pretty reasonable option, you know, um, for people. So, so I think sometimes, but then you have a kind of separate narrative by the anti-treaty, particularly the ones who spoke to Ernie O'Malley in the 40s. And they felt like there had been a silence about the civil war and a lack of recognition of, of what they'd done and a lack of appreciation of what they'd done. So they talked a lot about silence, but I don't even think it's, re you know, and people, you know, but they were quite eager to talk about it and talk about what happened. I mean, I think, you know, and even, and so, and people often say that their parents who were involved never talked about it to them. Um, and to a certain extent it's true. I, you know, certainly outside, I think they did talk to each other about what happened, 
you know, and then, but then, you know, what I also often find is, is, is when, when you talk to the, to the sons and daughters of the, of the first generation and people who fought, what they, when they think about it, what they tend to say is, well, actually they did talk about it, but I just thought it was old man stuff or old woman stuff and I wasn't that interested. And it wasn't until much later that I realized I should have been paying more attention. So, so I think that really the, the idea of silence in the Civil War has been a bit, is, 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 it's not that it's, it's not that it's wrong uh, to say that there was silence about the Civil War, but I think it's, I think it's just more complicated than that. Yunan, you would like to add to that. Well, on the one hand, there's this rhetoric of extraordinary bitterness, but in terms of, of communal relations and so on, that just doesn't seem to apply. You do, for example, have, have specific, uh, if you like, regional bitterness, particularly in Kerry, in relation to the conduct of free state forces and so on. And that grievance, if you like, hasn't gone away. But he, quite early on, after the Civil War, you find that this is a, this is a, the Civil War creates bitterness primarily within the elite. The, Republic, the, the, the separatist elite, rather than wider communities, because you don't have what you don't have expropriation. You don't have people. You don't have whole villages being burnt because they're one side or the other. You don't have any. You have a lot of incidental damage. You have a lot of casual killing and so on. But what you 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 you, you, you do not have a wide a huge split in, in our in Irish society. Kevin Barry's sister being a prime example, didn't recognize the state, you know, out and out Republican. But whenever she wanted anything from the bureaucracy, she got on to Frank Aiken or to Oscar Trainer or whatever, people with whom uh, she had been close, even though she wasn't speaking to them. Once Dick Mulcahy, bloody Dick, the head of the, you know, the head of the, 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 the free state side of the Civil War and the military side, once he goes into office with Sean McBride in 1948, my grandmother is quite happy to talk to him. She won't talk to Dev. So I think that's, so I, well, that's a personal rant. But I, I think we have to be really careful. I think, I think a lot of Northern nationalists and Northern Republicans are the ones who should feel most bitter about the legacy of the Civil War. Not necessarily because it didn't address partition, but because the Southern, the new Southern elites did not think systematically about how can we possibly protect uh, the nationalist minority in the in Northern Ireland. We may not be able to do anything about the new jurisdiction, but if you look at the efforts the British put into, in the terms of the 1922 constitution, especially of ensuring that minorities were well looked after in this jurisdiction, uh, it, I think it's a tragedy that nobody gave any thought uh, to how on earth, even if it's only for the interim, do we protect the interests of nationalists in Northern Ireland? Brilliant. Thanks, everyone. Um, and I think then just to sum it up um, with one last question, which I'm not sure can be answered with a simple yes or no. But if you were to say, would you think Ireland is a place of proud commemoration or hidden shame and regret? Pride is a sin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think people are right to think critically about violence. And I don't think we should take the view that, you know, just because other countries had violent revolutions, you know, and, and are proud of them, we should be proud of ours. I think people are right to be critical and historians are right to examine the motivations of, of, of those who took part and, and uncover the nastier aspects of things as well. But I do think sometimes in Ireland, there's this, this sense, uh, sense that, you know, it's extraordinary for us to be proud of the 1916 rising or the War of Independence because really aren't we just then proud of violence? And it kind of, it seems to be completely divorced from a knowledge of the world as it was, of you know the, the greatest calamity in human history in the First World War had just taken place. Millions of people had been killed. The British Empire was fighting 
across the globe often far more brutally than it was in Ireland to hold on to its empire and that really our struggle for independence is not that extraordinary in global terms and there's nothing wrong with being proud of that. It doesn't mean having a romantic or a starry-eyed view about these things but there's nothing wrong with us wanting to commemorate becoming independent and sometimes commentary in, in this state does seem to imply that really you know we should be a bit embarrassed about that. So that wraps up our discussion for this week's episode. We've touched on quite a lot today and I think it's very important to consider these aspects of public memory and commemoration when looking at national identity and nationalism. And really, thank you so much to all of our speakers for joining us. Yunan, Eve, Kieran, and Brian, you've all been fantastic and it's been such a pleasure talking to you. We'll have a new episode of Many Moons Ago in two weeks, so please do stay tuned. Thank you all so much for joining us on this episode.